I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast was recorded, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is Making a Difference, a podcast about people who are making change happen. On the show, you'll hear from people who are making a difference on a day-to-day basis, from the local level in their communities to change on a global scale. You'll learn what makes them tick and the values that are driving their actions. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. In this very special final episode of the series, I talk with Mark Crosweller. Mark is former Director General of Emergency Management Australia and also former head of the National Resilience Task Force. He's now the founder and director of his own enterprise, Ethical Intelligence. Mark Croswell, welcome. You've done a PhD recently on the ethical premise of leading through the adversity and loss and disasters. Can I just start by cutting that back a bit? How do you define ethics or what's ethical? Ethics really examines the nature of what is a good life. It's concerned with how we treat each other, the basis of our relationality, the basis of how we construct our societies, what makes for a good life, what supports human flourishing, how do we find a sense of happiness and those things that we do and how do we stay well. So really it's that exchange of mutual respect and mutual regard and consideration for each other that frames up the ethical basis of what makes us human. And it really is fundamental. Ethics predicates pretty much everything we think, say and do. Predicates of thought, which form the basis of our relationships and how we treat each other and how we give each other due respect and due regard and the dignities that we deserve. I think that's all based in ethics. And Steve, anything that we do in terms of decision-making or interacting with others has an ethical premise to it. Now, we do that automatically. We don't have to think ethics every moment of every day when we have interaction with somebody, but it's operating all the time, how we treat each other, what's important, what we hold as value, how do we establish the basis of our relationships. They are all ethically based. Ethics really is also does its best work, I think, when it's dealing with notions of harmfulness or suffering. That's a really important distinction in ethics. It can be flourishing, a good life, well-being, or non-harmfulness. And I tend to focus in on non-harmfulness or looking after each other because that's been my whole career in crisis and emergency management about how do you create better and safer spaces and places for people. And I see, Mark, I'm hearing without you saying that you're talking about choices and in that sort of grey space. But I notice in the title of your PhD, you've talked about leading and the role of leaders. It's very much about the role of leadership, I think. And what I looked at in my PhD was many things, of course, PhDs, they go into so many areas in history and philosophy and research and so on and so forth. But I was really interested in how leaders perceive themselves in the context of loss and adversity, to the extent to which they understood it, for example. These were disaster management leaders, but I've said for a long time now that crisis can be highly overt, so the world can see it. Flood storms, bushfires, cyclones, terrorist events, warfare, so it goes on. Or they can be highly covert and nobody can see them, but they still exist. So people have crises or suffering or harmfuls in their life pretty much every day on some level. And if you're a leader, corporate leader, institutional leader, disaster management leader, it doesn't matter, you will be dealing with harmfulness or dissatisfaction or suffering of the people that you're leading. One of the things I was interested in knowing about was to what extent did leaders understand loss and suffering, for example, and it turns out not as well as they would like. So disaster management leaders have responsibility for looking after people in crisis, 
But when I asked them to define loss and to define suffering, they really struggled to give that any real articulation, any real attributes. So they have a sense of it. They have an intuition about it. And you would do as a human, of course. And these were good people, Steve. These were great people. But they couldn't describe or really sort of flesh out what loss looked like or what suffering looked like. And by their own admission, they said, look, we need to know more about this. We need to understand it better. What drives that is an inherent insensitivity in the political discourses in which we operate. And that insensitivity drives an invulnerability. So if we explore the word vulnerability really quickly, it's the susceptibility to be harmed or to suffer and the inability to cope with it. And this is where ethics plays such an important role because we are all, as humans, without exception, to greater or lesser degrees vulnerable. We are susceptible to being harmed. One of the easiest ways to describe that is when you fall in love and you're hoping for a reciprocation from your partner, you're really exposing yourself to being hurt. And sometimes your partner says he or she loves you, and sometimes they say they don't. And so there's potential for injury there. Now, we can cope with it over time, but at the time, it can be really heartbreaking when you put yourself out there and say, I love you very much, and they say, I'm sorry, but I don't. We've all had that experience in our lives, and it hurts, and we don't feel like we've got the skills to cope. So it's a really simple example of saying, look, that's what vulnerability looks like, and we all share in it as humans, but non-humans share it as well, of course. So our entire planetary ecosystem is vulnerable, and we're seeing that play out in the context of global climate change, for example. So many species are threatened. Sentient and non-sentient species are being threatened. So vulnerability is fundamental to being human. It's fundamental to the basis of relationship. It's also fundamental to living in societies, and we need to do a few things with it. We need to minimise it and manage it and reduce it wherever possible, particularly systemic vulnerability. But what we don't want to do is deny, disavow, or ignore. And what we tend to do in Western society, because of our, some of our political discourses which are dominant, is to do exactly that, is to deny, disavow, or ignore vulnerability, our own vulnerability and the vulnerability of others, because it's such a difficult word. That's the basis of relationships, so we've got to let it in, because it's what makes us human, it's what establishes the basis of our connections with each other is that we expose ourselves, we open up, we let people see who we really are. We remove the veneer and we make connection. As a leader, that's really important. And we need to do that with wisdom, of course. You wouldn't do that to everybody because you don't want to be exploited and you don't want to be hurt, necessarily hurt by somebody or something. So we have to be wise about the extent to which we expose ourselves to being vulnerable. But when we completely deny it, disavow it or ignore it, we shut off any possibility of seeing the harm or the suffering or the potential for that in other people or other things. And that's what's closing off many leaders from being sensitive to or relatable to others when they're trying to lead them through crisis and adversity. You've described leaders who are dealing with what for many of us are just incredibly wicked problems with awful consequences. And you mentioned too that these are good people. To what extent has the system and the way that we construct our corporate entities, if you like, desensitised our leaders to that kind of vulnerability that you talk about? Because we talk about hardening up and people not being a soft touch, and you've touched on that as well. Is there a sort of a social factor going on in our, well, in this case, emergency management organisations? Definitely, but it's also the universal in Western societies and in the corporate world as well. The thing about disaster management is it's really just an exemplar or an amplification of people's lives, really. People have crisis in their life pretty much every day or every week or every month. It's just not big and ugly. As I said before, it could be quite covert, it could be quite hidden or quite small, but it's still there. 
So that these principles apply in the corporate world. I just tend to amplify them or exemplify them in the world of disaster management. But there's a discourse that says, look, what's more important is economic productivity, efficiency, effectiveness, small government, contestability, outsourcing, deregulation, personal responsibility, entrepreneurship. Those things are more important than making connection with people. And so we convince ourselves that to be vulnerable or to be relatable or connected is somehow a weakness or is non-productive or doesn't meet the higher order good of economic prosperity. Now, all of that is a falsity, but we're led to believe through quite influential political discourse in our societies that the economy is king. It sits at the top of the tree. Now, most people individually, when you ask them that question, they'll say, well, it doesn't. But if you listen to the social discourse of Western societies, particularly in countries like Australia, New Zealand and the United States, it's in our face every day. It's in every news bulletin. The economy is talked about every day. It gets its own special section in the news every night at 6.15. And I've been listening to it for 58 years and I still don't understand it, but I have to listen to it every night for 58 years. I'm being a little fickle. So we've got this dominant paradigm that talks about the economy is king and we're not going to survive unless we have a strong economy. I would turn it around and say, of course, we need a strong economy, but what we need more so is a relational and a relatable society, a society that cares for each other, a society that understands its ethos, that understands its moral compass, wherever it derives that from, whether it's religious or secular. It doesn't matter to a point. There are some distinctions there, of course, but nonetheless, what's the most important thing? Well, I think there are three things that are the most important, being well, being happy, and flourishing and being human to the fullest extent possible. I think that they're the most important things. A strong economy can give you that. Good social policy gives you that, and so it goes on. But when you turn that around and all of a sudden the economy's at the top of the tree and what's underneath that thing is well-being and happiness and flourishing, they tend to get sacrificed. They tend to fall away because the economy is the most important thing. Somehow we've got to turn it around and say, I'm not saying we don't need a good economy or a strong economy. But what's its purpose? Its purpose is to liberate, is to give people a sense of free will, but the capacity to exercise free will and choice in their best interests and the interests of those people that they care about or those things that they care about in the direction of happiness, well-being and flourishing. That's the basis of a good ethical society and good ethical leadership. Presumably, Mark, another way of saying that would be that well and happy and connected people who might require a bit of effort or a bit of economic input may well be more greater contributors to GDP in the long term. It's really interesting. In the resilience policy debates in this country, we put enormous pressure on people to be resilient, particularly in natural hazards crisis. And we've seen this play out in Lismore and the bushfires of a couple of years ago, and I've seen it in my career for a long time. It's what drove me to do my PhD, actually. We were trying to make resilient people resilient, which is a bit of an oxymoron. But what my PhD was able to express was that More and more and more governments are telling people to be personally responsible. But in order to do that, in order to flourish or be well or be happy, there are some things that you need from your government or from society. And they are sort of driven by the equities of power, wealth and resource. So if those things are distributed fairly, equitably and reasonably, then what you're effectively doing or what we're effectively doing is liberating as many people as possible to exercise choice and exercise their agency. So there's still this notion of responsibility. People are still responsible for their happiness and their well-being and their flourishing, but they've got support to be able to be that way. But when you take those supports away, when social policy becomes degraded, 
when economies are not strong or they're singular or they're mono, they're not diverse enough. When you're structurally locked into a set of circumstances that you can't trade out of because you have insufficient capital and income and so it goes on, then the world starts to work against you. And so you want to be a certain way, you want to flourish, be happy and be well, but the circumstances are not permitting that. And that's becoming increasingly true for larger numbers of people in the world, really. We're seeing the polarisation of wealth and resource right across the globe at the moment. And it's been going on for a good 20 years and we talk a lot about it. Now, the causes of that are quite complex, but one of the causes is this social discourse, this political discourse that talks about personal responsibility in the absence of proper structural economic and social supports. And governments need to get back to buying into those things and putting them back in place or re-establishing some of those things in certain places and contexts to let people exercise their agency. And it's particularly true in disaster. The really powerful image for me is a young woman on a roof with two young children in Lismore with the water lapping the gutters of the roof of her house. And we still have policy settings to say, by the way, you need to be resilient. How resilient can you be when you're sitting on the roof of your house and there's water up to the underside of the eaves? And there's no support there to help that person to get out of that pickle at that point in time. But more importantly, how did that person get into that pickle to start with? Because there are questions, for example, around land use policy and the extent to which we've taken into account climate change effect in our decision making and so it goes on. So we don't have time today, Steve, to unpackage that complex problem. But it is an example. It's a really great metaphor for we're still telling people to be resilient, but they're finding themselves in circumstances where resilience just isn't going to cut it where they hit a point of limitation and they can't be any more resilient than they already are. I'll take your hint, Mark, that there's plenty of other research and evidence around and we don't need to go there to say that in that emergency management space, the emergencies are only going to get more dire. The trend is not good. If I come back to the point you were just making then, in terms of if we look at the kind of traditional phases, if you like, in regard to emergency management, how can compassionate, more virtuous leadership, if you like, influence the preparedness or the readiness for emergencies and where are we now? I think we don't do too bad in Australia. I'm not, I mean, I've been in the sector for 37, 38 years. I hope I'm not grumpy. I could be grumpy, depends on who you ask, but I still remain hopeful and I think we have learned a lot, but there's still more to do. And what I mean by that is that this insensitivity that pervades leadership where we fail to see the suffering of another or the potential for another to suffer which is to be vulnerable. So if we disavow, deny or ignore vulnerability, ours and others, and then we write plans and policies and develop systems and processes with that ignorance of vulnerability or that denial, we're setting up a set of circumstances or causes which are going to perpetuate the very thing that we don't want. And so that's why if we go right at the start of a planning phase, and we could talk about land use planning, where and how we place ourselves upon the landscape, needs a compassionate response. It needs a compassionate thought. We need to look at it and say, well, to what extent is that locality potentially harmful? And what does harmfulness look like? Is it a flood, a fire, a storm, a cyclone, or whatever the case might be? And what can we do about it before we pour the first bucket of concrete or really before we make the first decision to go ahead? So before we ever make a decision to approve a development, to what extent have we considered non-harmfulness in that decision-making process? Now, it sounds simple and it sounds, you think that that would happen quite easily, but it doesn't because other priorities can turn up. So one of the great policy tensions that policymakers have to navigate is what's called prosperous now versus prosperous future. And most developers, most people who have capital and want to realise that capital or the profit from that capital in a short period of time will pick prosperous now. 
And so that might mean that you don't necessarily fully consider the natural hazard component of a development because it's too expensive to rectify, or it might make the land redundant, maybe not in five years, but in 25 years, particularly the climate change effect, particularly with, say, coastal erosion and so it goes on. Sometimes the decision-making process is flawed because there's a bit of an inkling about that harmfulness. Then arrogance and ignorance turns up and says, I'm not going to focus too much on that because I want to maximise my investment or optimise my investment today. Now, other people will say, the prosperous future people will say, no, 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 you need to take that into account fully because we don't want to have a legacy in 25 years of people getting washed away in the sea because of sea level rise or coastal inundation or whatever the case might be. So there's the tension straight away. Do we make money today or do we preserve the cost into the future to make sure we don't have to pay too much in 25 years? Really complex problem, but still ethically premised. And then the answer is really, well, we have to strike a balance in full knowledge of the potential of that problem. And often a non-compassionate response won't even look at the problem. It won't even identify the harmfulness. It just ignores it and says, don't worry about it for now. It's really curious that you use that kind of framing, Mark, because in a sense you're describing a compassionate response as really having to make the hard decision because in this case there's a few sacred cows there. We expect societally that if you've got land you should be able to develop to the hilt so a compassionate response that says but hang on longer term someone's going to have to pay for that well that's not really in keeping with red tape reduction it's not and red tape reduction is a great term but what does it really mean i mean i've been in senior executive management since 1998 and i've been producing efficiency dividends for governments at two percent plus for bang on 25 30 years well in the first couple of years i found them but for the next 25 they didn't exist because we serve them up to earlier in the process. So it sounds great to get rid of red tape. And I'm not saying that things can't be overly bureaucratic, they can be, but you need good controls and good decision-making processes in place to try and limit the harmfulness that you're about to move forward into future generations. We're not aiming for a perfect world and we're not trying to stop development in this thought process. But what we're saying is let's be fully expressed about potential. Let's make joint decisions about how much harmfulness we can absorb because harm is part of living. It's a part of being human, is that we're going to get hurt at some point or harmed at some point, or at least have the potential for that. So if if we fully express what that could look like, and then we do lots of things to minimise it, then we're on the right path. Then we may still develop, but we develop with greater design insights or design principles or limitations or caveats or whatever the case might be to minimise that harm along the way. There's a really interesting photograph that came out of the floods in Brisbane of a development, I think it was 25 or 30 lots of riverside development were being sold. And the water level of the river was halfway up the billboard. So here's the billboard that's three, four, five metres off the ground of the land that's being sold saying river frontage development ready for sale. And the river's flooded. And now that water is four metres above the ground. And that land is being sold for housing. Now somebody hasn't thought about flooding someone has managed to secure an approval for that development to be built and hasn't adequately taken into account the potential for harmfulness into the future. It's a really stark example of where the decisions go wrong. So ethical decision-making, ethical leadership, ethical considerations around, for example, compassionate response or non-harmfulness start right at the point of decision-making and then flow on through to residual harmfulness and how we tackle that, the manifestation of hazards and how we tackle that, 
the recovery process and how we fix it up after we've been through the experience, you know, compassion never leaves any of these spaces. And all the way along, it's trying to deal with harmfulness, the minimization of harmfulness, the reduction of suffering, and easing that tension and that stress on people or non-humans, you know, animals and the biota and so on and so forth in order to try and get them back to really a better place. It just never goes away, Steve. It never goes away. Mark, can I posit the premise too, and I think you've touched on this, that the people who have wealth, who have affluence, can afford to live in places that are less likely for flood inundation or fire, that they have the ability to build whatever the protections are so that they're not so affected. The people most affected are typically those who are least able to afford that. How do we as a society give those people political agency or influence so that they're looked after in our decision-making processes? A great debate in society about who owns the risk or who owns the responsibility for the risk. And I tend to take the view, well, the responsibility for the risk goes all the way back to the decision about land use. So whatever that entity looked like that agreed for that development to go ahead has to carry some responsibility. Now, that won't be an individual. It'll be a government body. It'll be either a local council or a state planning entity that's decided that thing can go ahead and occasionally it's the Commonwealth. So there's some liability there, I think, and there's a taxpayer liability to help people out of that problem. A lot of people at the lower socioeconomic end of society are structurally locked in. So they're on low-level land, it's cheaper, it's more affordable, but it's more dangerous. Often many of them don't have sufficient capital or income earning opportunities to trade out or to upgrade their properties. They just don't have it. And I think as a society, we have to get this. We have to accept that some people do find themselves in that position, give up the stereotypical archetype of the lazy welfare recipient. I'm not saying they don't exist. They're probably 1% of the welfare recipients, you know, maybe 2%. I have no idea what the ratio is, but it's very small. And I can say that with confidence because I've walked these disaster grounds for 30 odd years. And I've walked them with three prime ministers during the course of my career. And we went to some very, very low socioeconomic areas. And those people were doing the very best they could in the very worst of circumstance with the resources that were available to them. And the resources available to them as personal was very small. They were good people. They found themselves in a set of circumstances which were highly unfortunate. We need to look after those people. That's part of living in society. That is a societal response. The resilience narratives are too harsh. We almost morally judge those people for finding themselves in that set of circumstances. If you disaggregate their circumstances and sit down and talk to them and understand their life path, there's a lot of suffering there. There's a lot of unfortunate circumstance and much of it is not self-caused. Much of it has been derived from a set of external circumstances for which they had little control or say over. Domestic violence, sexual abuse, intergenerational low socioeconomic status and so it goes on their stories can be harrowing but what's inspiring is their attitude they still want to be resilient they still want to participate in society and do the best they can they just don't have a lot of resources to be able to do that so i think we've got to give up the harsh moral judgments when people find themselves in distress or in these spaces or places and i think the other thing steve is some relatively wealthy people also build in silly places as well (laughs) And, uh, Thank you for blowing up my theory, Mark. Yeah, that's all right. It's, um, it was a little binary, but, <laughs> but they do find themselves or put themselves in hazardous spaces. And we have a habit in Australia of the old attitude, she'll be right, mate, of being overly optimistic about our risk outlook. 
And often we only see what we want to see. So a lot of people love to live in the forest. And why wouldn't you? The strange forests are beautiful, but they're not so beautiful in the middle of a drought, in a hot, dry, catastrophic fire weather summer. And they turn deadly. And we need to know that. We need to accept that or learn to live with that as well as the cold winter day when the forest is moist and the breeze is warm and the sun is shining. You know, that's great. Let's live in the forest when it looks like that. But you've also got to live in the forest when it turns deadly. It's the same living on the edge of a river. The water view is fantastic, but it can also kill you. And I think all those things have to be fully expressed to their maximum potentiality, and then we'll make our choices about what we can do about it individually and collectively. But so often, Steve, those knowledges about hazard spaces are suppressed or attenuated or traded off or ignored. And so, in other words, ignorance turns up. And ignorance is one of the greatest causes of human suffering. Things we could have otherwise known, but chose for whatever reason not to know. It's a huge part in disaster management of the causation of suffering of people. And usually it only becomes fully known after an event when we realise we could have known more than we did, but we failed to ask the question or we failed to inquire. I presume at times we have inquired and the report is sitting on a shelf. Absolutely. Sometimes the information is suppressed. It's not made available. There's a lot of contestability around data in Australia at the moment, particularly in institutional worlds between governments, within governments, and between governments and the private sector, that the knowledge is there or the potential for the expression of the knowledge and the facts and the figures and the data and the intelligence is there, but it's not released because there's potential liabilities attached, because it exposes poor decisions. And what comes with that, of course, is the potential for lawsuits and so it goes on. So we need protections or mechanisms in place to allow that knowledge to be fully expressed, but it needs to be fully expressed nonetheless. As I was saying before, Steve, these are all questions of ethics. And as a leader in these systems and these institutions, it's a question of virtue. To what extent does the character of our own leadership, the virtuous nature of our leadership, drive us forward and compel us to raise these questions, to represent the views of those less fortunate, to take into consideration in our decision-making the potential for harmfulness of other people? Institutional life tends to suggest that there's a very small group of people that make decisions on behalf of a very large group of people. And to what extent are we taking needs into account when we make our decisions? It's one of the great challenges of being in public life and writing public policy. Whatever you're about to do in terms of determining public policy is going to affect people. And to really understand fully to the extent at which you're able, what that effect might look like is really important. And the heart of that is to understand the nature of vulnerability. To what extent is that policy decision going to potentially bring harm to people in a way that they can't cope with it? See, every decision will have harmfulness attached. That's just what happens in life. But the extent to which people can cope with it, can absorb it, transform from it or adapt to it, they're the big questions in public policy which we often don't give enough thought about. So, Mark, what should we look for in our leaders? If we look at our political leaders in Australia at the moment, and they've been through a lot of scrutiny, an enormous amount of scrutiny in the Parliament of Australia and elsewhere, I understand how tough it is to be a politician. A brief politician, Mm. it's a tough job. It really is a tough job. Sometimes it's not made any easier by the way they behave, and their behaviour is really no different to any other human, essentially. And I think that's insightful about what's happening inside our institutions. And what it's calling for and what people are demanding is more virtue. They want to see leaders who genuinely care, are compassionate, can be trusted, have patience, truthful, are considerate of others, show courage, have humility and so it goes on. 
And those attributes of leadership are impressive. And we see it play out in Jacinda Ardern, for example, in New Zealand, who runs her government on the virtue ethics of empathy, kindness and well-being. When executed, they're imperfect. And sometimes they create unintended consequences, which are difficult politically and need to be sorted out. But hey, that's being human. That's just part of being human. But the predicates of thought are empathy, kindness and well-being. That's where the thought starts from. And because we don't understand these things, they are perfections in their own right. Virtues are perfections, but we don't fully understand them. And we don't fully know how to contextualise them into humanity. So that's where we get into a pickle. But they're perfections in their own right. So all they're really saying is just get better at them. So if you're going to be a compassionate leader, just get better at it. As you go through your leadership journey, just keep practising. If you want to be kind, keep practising. Understand how sophisticated kindness is. It's really sophisticated. All of these things require moral courage. So none of them are weaknesses. I've spent 37 years in crisis in emergency management and national security. I understand more than some, less than others, what suffering looks like. And to hold space for someone who is suffering or who has suffered takes enormous courage, which is what compassion asks for. Compassion demands that you hold space for someone who has suffered or is suffering and you do something about it. It could just be in words, thoughts or actions but you're not just sitting there relating, you're doing something about it. So that takes enormous amounts of courage. And people often say compassion is weak. No, no, no. The disavow, denial, or the ignorance of compassion is the weakness. The engagement with compassion is not weak. It takes enormous courage. It takes enormous courage to show kindness, particularly in the face of everything else going on in the world. We see this play out with Zelensky in the Ukraine. Very interesting leader. It's still you know, very early days for him. It's only 20 odd days into a war. But he has shown extraordinary courage and he's showing great attributes of virtuous leadership. Not perfect, of course, but he's giving Russian soldiers a chance. He's not trying to engage or engender hysteria in his community. He's trying to protect his community, but he's holding on to the traditional values of that country, which is around hospitality and much of these religious predicates, which are very strong in that part of the world. He's holding on to those. So he has to deal with violence and force and bloodshed, but he's still doing it in a way that you can see that there are threads of virtue in his leadership and he's offering kindness and he's offering compassion. He's offering constraint. He's only really meeting force with enough force to stop the force. He's not on the offensive. He's not on the attack. They're not looking for blood. They're looking to protect themselves. And so there's virtue operating there really subtly, but it's there and it's really interesting to watch it. So there are leaders on the world stage that are using virtue in their leadership, the character of their leadership. We're instantly drawn to them. We like what we see. And the reason we like what we see, Steve, is because that's what we like inside of us. Because these leaders ought not be sanctified. So let's not make them gods. Let's not worship them or make them holy. Because if we do that, eventually we will demonize them because they won't meet our needs. But let's look at them as exemplars. And I say this a lot, that if you can see the kindness of Jacinda Ardern in her decision-making or her narrative, it's actually because you can see the kindness in yourself, because you know what kindness looks like. It's a very Buddhist thing, I should declare right up front of the Buddhist. (laughs) So we only get to recognise, recognise, so cognise, recognise kindness because we can see it in our own mind. So I can see the kindness of someone else because I can see the kindness of myself. I can see the compassion of someone else because I can see the compassion inside myself. So the reason they're so attractive when we see them in leaders is because that's what we're capable of as well. And people often don't make that distinction. They think, oh, I could never possibly do that. Well, you can because you can recognise it. 
you may not be able to do it in the same set of circumstances. You may not be a prime minister. doesn't matter. You can show kindness in your family. You can show kindness in your institution or your organisation or whatever the case might be. There's a resurgence of the need for virtue. And I think particularly the younger generations are calling for it in spades. And many of them are only prepared to sign up their employment responsibilities to people they trust and people who show virtue, people who show compassion or kindness or those other attributes, characteristics that they're attracted to, they'll go and work for those people. Well, let's face it, we move from the gig economy to it's really the fact of the world of the employee because the, the labour shortages in many countries at the moment are quite acute. So we can make choices about who we work for, the leaders we work under, and I think we should be very conscious about that. Interesting, Mark, that in that closing sentence, you took us to the place where people want to be having characteristics of kindness, which would give them the best chance of being resilient. Powerful message. Mark Croswell, thanks very much. You're welcome. So pleased to end this podcast on that note. Thanks to Mark Crosweller. This has been the final of this series of Making a Difference. Thanks to Adam and the team at Wavelength Creative for all the work on production of this show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Civic Mind, specialists in governance and ethics for local and state government agencies. To find out more, head to the website civicmind.com.au. And so you don't miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to Making a Difference in your favourite podcast app. And if you like the episode, please leave me a five-star review. It really helps other people to find the show. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and I'll speak to you next time.